So that's the official answer for the Department of Foreign Affairs that they have 2.4 offices working on China. And I imagine 0.4 means that someone is spending 40% of their time working on China and 60% somewhere else. But that is quite limited. Hello and welcome to Perspectives with Nilo, a regular podcast that brings you news and views from around the world. You can find all of our past episodes on our blog site at pwnilo.com or by searching for Perspectives with Nilo on your favorite podcast app. In July, the European Think Tank Network on China released their latest report on EU-China relations. The report, which is authored by members of 22 European think tanks and research institutions, takes stock of the national approaches to China across EU member states, focusing on areas such as national China strategies, information sharing, use of EU tools, risk analysis and engagements with Taiwan. For the first time, the report contains a chapter dedicated to Ireland-China relations. It's written by Alexander Davy, who is an analyst editor with Merricks, the Mercator Institute for China Studies, based in Berlin. And he's my guest on this extended episode of Perspectives with Nilo. Alex, uh, you're very welcome back to Perspectives with Nilo. I'm very grateful that you're able to join us for this discussion. Thanks very much for having me, Nilo. It's great to be back on your podcast. Thank you. Uh, to kick off, maybe you can tell us uh, what is the purpose of this ETNC report and how did it come about? Okay, so the European Think Tank Network on China, it's a gathering of China experts um, from think tanks all around Europe. And each year they'll meet up uh, to, um, you know, see what are the current European-China issues. And a report is made each year um, on a certain aspect of European-China relations. Um, and so myself, as part of uh, Merricks, and also being an Irish citizen, saw that Ireland had never been included uh, in this annual report of the European Think Tank Network on China. And so I suggested that I would be happy to write the, the Ireland report for the first time, and the, the members of the network voted on that, and they endorsed, uh, endorsed me to write it. Um, and yeah, over the years, they've talked about, uh, you know, China's Silk Road, the Belt and Road Initiative, um, Chinese investment in Europe, um, Europe in the face of US-China rivalry. Um, and so this year, we kind of went back to square one and went about uh, the approaches of European countries towards China, and including the EU. And that's basically what I wrote about in my chapter regarding Ireland. Okay, well, it will be great to talk uh, in, in, in more detail about the chapter on Ireland in, in maybe in a little bit. But first, um, as the report examines about 24 European countries uh, and their relationships with China, maybe we can talk a little bit about the EU itself as a whole, because there is one chapter on the EU as a whole. Uh, what, what are the key takeaways in the report on how the EU position towards China has evolved? Well, I think to distill it down to its simplest is that um, in 2019, the EU took a position that China is a partner, competitor, and rival. Um, they call this like a, a tripart, tripartite approach or, or, or um, three different approaches where there are partners on certain issues, like climate change, they compete maybe on things like maybe uh, high tech like uh, like semiconductors or or, or um, 
things that are high up in the value chain and then they compete maybe on the value system um, and 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 uh, they, there's maybe disagreement on that and so you know this year when von der Leyen Ursula von der Leyen EU Commission president spoke um, at an event hosted by Merricks uh, she talked about how they're they're not dropping this tripartite uh, approach but that there's more weight towards the uh, uh, competitor and rival aspect. Um, there is still space for cooperating on issues related to environment, climate change, and that is very crucial because um, this is not something where, you know, if other countries go it alone and some countries are working on it, it, it doesn't work. Um, but uh, she also brought in this term de-risking, and this was uh, brought in as an alternative uh, from decoupling. Um, so the rhetoric of decoupling that you had from the US in the Trump years, um, uh, it, this is a different way for Europe to go its own way about um, being clear-eyed in its approach to China and finding out where there are risks, risks uh, certain vulnerabilities or where there's exposures to, to uh, reduce and mitigate those um, and to uh, maintain a relationship with China in a way that is uh, mutually beneficial or, or in a way that where there isn't a massive trade-off for the EU or there or or um, that that it's not um, you know there's only some aspects being addressed and other things are just being blocked off it's it's not the way that, that the EU wants to approach China um, so that, that that was the main takeaway from the EU chapter um, and the expansion of the, the, the toolbox um, that the EU has with dealing with certain issues that we, we, we deal with uh, with China, um, um, whether that be related to telecommunications infrastructure, uh, foreign direct investment screening, um, uh, looking for a level playing field, um, with access uh, to China's market and China's access to the EU market, and these tool this toolbox has been has been expanding and developing and in a way to address certain issues or to mitigate certain issues that have uh, occurred in the past, um, and they're really trying to you know uh, provide tools and and means and and ways for um, EU countries to. Um, secure securitize their 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 um, relationship with china and to make sure that um that there is a fair interdependency rather than an overdependency in certain sectors and uh, you mentioned the ursula von der leyen speech on eu china relations back in march that certainly was a landmark speech for for somebody like myself a china watcher um you know i heard her say things that i've never heard uh, EU politicians say before, um, but uh, do you think uh, that has since then? Do you think, particularly since that particular juncture, uh, there has been a new awareness uh, about China among EU states, and um, we we see some 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 changes happening, um, like for example. Uh, Italy having second thoughts on continuing in the BRI and, and Germany uh, recently finalizing its own official China strategy. Do you think there, there's a new awareness now on on China within the EU? Um, I think there was a slow change happening even prior to COVID um, with the direction that the Chinese government was taking in that their centralization of power and leadership 
and um, certain uh, domestic behaviors and patterns uh, within China that did cause uh, issues of concern for, for, for uh, European countries and the EU. Um, I think also what accelerated this change was uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, the, with regard to the EU having to reflect on its security uh, and especially um, countries that are closer to the borders of Ukraine um, and closer to Putin's war. Um, and it, it made uh, the EU reevaluate uh, its security interests and uh, how it relates to not only Russia, but China, um, and also China's positioning in this um, war. Um, and so the EU was not happy uh, with um, China's positioning. Um, it, it, it states itself as a, as a neutral uh, uh, stakeholder in this, um, but there has been no strong com condemnation from China of, of, of uh, Russia's actions, and that has been um, a, a wake-up call for the EU, and it has decided to accelerate its um, methods for dealing with uh, issues that, 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 that may emanate uh, from China or may involve China in some way. Um, and so this change has been gradually, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's been gradual, but, but, it, but it has sped up somewhat, and it is a way of you know, making sure that the EU is not caught in a uh, tricky situation or being unprepared in case of, you know, something like a trade war, uh, again, that rises between the US and China, or if anything happens regarding Taiwan or uh, anything, if the war in, in Ukraine uh, escalates in some way or another. And uh, and the advance, I guess, in in the strategies and and awareness. I mean, how how much more work needs to be done to kind of operationalize this de-risking, as it were? Yeah, I think the contours of what de-risking means is, is are, are being shaped right now, and there is um, somewhat of a narrative battle taking place uh, within the EU, but in the US and in China, defining what that means and. You know, in some senses, the U.S. has appropriated this term um, because uh, you know decoupling in this globalized world is just simply unimaginable because there's such strong interlinkages between the U.S. and China, and so there, it's an interesting seeing that the U.S. taking on this wording, but also um, for the Chinese to also decide what it means and for them to argue, you know, uh, that de-risking means um, strategic autonomy. It means uh, de-risking from being too dependent on the US. Uh, it means about being able to make decisions without pressure from Washington DC as the, as the Chinese see it. So there is a narrative battle of what that means, but there's also uh, discomfort from China of, of, of um, how this term is being described or, 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 or showing that China is um, creating challenges for, for, for the EU and, and especially with China's um, economy in a very um, precarious position right now or, or, or a position of uncertainty. It's within China's best interest for trade to be active and to be uh, going uh, to the way it was before COVID. And so de-risking is something that's not within the best interests uh, of China if it is defined to be a way of 
um, managing trade for for risks and dependencies um, as uh, Brussels sees it. Ursula von der Leyen in her speech uh, back in March, also on EU-China relations, she talked about how China has been ramping up trade coercion. Uh, what did she mean by that? And, and what is the mechanism involved there? I think when Ursula von der Leyen was referring to trade coercion, I think she um, may have specifically been pointing towards the case with Lithuania. Um, if you read the Lithuania chapter in the European uh think tank network on China report, it, it goes into this, but it was mainly as a result of uh, Vilnius deciding to change the name of their Taipei representative's office uh, to have the name Taiwan in its title, meaning that it is, it looks and it quacks like an embassy. Um, and that um, provoked the ire of the Chinese state they did not like that, and they told, they told them not to do that. The Lithuanians were steadfast in their decision to do so, and as a result, the Chinese government um, uh, implicitly or, or, or not explicitly, um, it started impacting the trade between Lithuania and China. Yeah, they pretty so much they, removed Lithuania from their customs lists uh, so that Lithuania is no longer recognised when it comes to trying to import goods to China, which is in contravention of WTO rules, right? Yes, yes. So there, there, there were uh, exports of Lithuanian goods that were not making their way into China or, or past customs. Um, and that wasn't such a major issue um, because the trade between Lithuania and China is so small, but how it, it's, it started to expand because you had products coming from Germany, for example, that had Lithuanian components and they then were not uh, making their way to China. And it was more so countries that were being affected uh, by the secondary consequences of this this, this restriction of, of Lithuanian goods coming into China. Um, it was impacting other countries. And so you had business associations or, or, or industry associations uh, kicking up a fuss, saying that this needs to be solved because our goods are being affected. Um, and then it was seen that this kind of... Um, restriction of goods entering into China was 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 uh, disrupting uh, trade and it wasn't being done so in a way that was following rules or regulations like you said towards the WTO or, or, or um, any other regulatory bodies and that was seen as um, not following the international rules and norms uh, 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 with which we, we we are each country is expected to operate and uh, and that's what I think that um, um, von der Leyen was talking about in relation to economic coercion. But also uh, it must be interpreted as a signal from China that if you do anything to upset uh, the CCP, then, you know, there will be consequences. I mean, implicitly, that's the message, right? Well, yeah, so there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a paradox here where the Chinese, com China or the PRC, they, they, they advocate for, Beijing advocates for this um, uh, multilateral organizations and each country being treated as equal with with one each country has a voice and and each one should be heard and when you know Lithuania decided to 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 um, open this uh, Taiwan office or embassy that um, it it uh, did so in a way or it provoked China in a way that 
made it not follow the rules and and um, not operate in a way where each country is treated equal or with respect. Um, again, the Chinese would argue that Lithuania uh, disrespected them and not re re uh, respecting the one China principle. But um, I think that if that was the case, or if, if they did do so, they should have gone along uh, formal routes to 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 to, uh, to deal with that dispute, rather than um, using uh, coercive and non-explicit methods to to um, injure uh, Lithuanian and the trade of other European countries towards China. There's a very interesting graph in in the report that uh, shows how important China is for European countries and what they focus on. It shows how different countries in the EU view China, whether it's in terms of political re relevance or how they look at this concept of de-risking. Um, it would take an awful long time to talk about all of them. So um, mm -hmm. maybe we can just take a deeper dive into Ireland. So you're, you're the, the author of the chapter on Ireland, the title of the mm -hmm. chapter is From Dragging Its Feet to Breaking Into a Sprint. Can you tell us what you meant uh, by that title and w in terms of what it means for Ireland-China relations? Yes. So from my research and, and, and you know, digging through uh, documents, uh, both from the Irish side and the Chinese side, and, and, uh, and, and the research that came up to me was that Ireland like many uh, European countries, has over the years increased its relations with China um, and it has tried to uh, maximize uh, opportunities. Um, and now it is maybe more so trying to uh, minimize risks. And so when I say from dragging its feet to breaking into a sprint, I, I see it as Ireland was a passive uh, recipient of uh, EU-China policy, um, meaning that they were um, taking on uh, or, or uh, acknowledging uh, EU directives or suggestions and, and implementing them, um, but not actively doing so. Uh, and they have trans, trans, um, transferred towards a active recipient of policy uh, of, of EU-China policy where certain tools um, like the uh, foreign direct investment screening and the 5G toolbox and um, issue uh, uh, tools uh, to, to mitigate risks are now being um, implemented more readily. Um, and what, still and in a way... Yeah, and Alex, what do you think caused caused that uh, transformation or change in attitude in Ireland? Well, so in the last couple of years, I, I point out three major incidents that were a shock uh, to the Irish government. Um, the first one is the three-year exit ban placed on businessman Richard O'Halloran uh, while he was in China um, to solve a business dispute between his employer. Uh, an aircraft leasing firm um, and Chinese stakeholders who invested in this company. Um, so he was in China for three years and the Irish government had to advocate for his release uh, again and again. Um, and eventually he was able to return home to Ireland. Um, 
but this was worrying because Ireland is, is the country that tries to present itself as open to business and, and being quite um, uh, business friendly and uh, the Irish government promotes, promotes this. Um, the second uh, uh, challenge uh, that came up was this um, Fujo uh, police overseas service station that was operating in Ireland without permission of the Irish government. Um, and this was an infringement of um, Irish, uh, Irish sovereignty and the Irish government immediately called for it to be closed down uh, and shut in October last year. Um, and a third uh, challenge was um, the Immigration Investor Programme, um, which was a programme that where, where uh, uh, investors who, uh, wealthy investors could invest in um, uh, receiving a, a visa for permanent residency, which could eventually lead to Irish citizenship. And the issue with this was that 94% of applicants or over 1,500 of the more than 1,600 applicants were Chinese nationals. Um, so the Irish government was, was, was making a lot of money from this, but um, there was a lot of uh, pressure uh, from uh, uh, the EU um, and, 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 and they, they spoke about the negative implications of such a, of such a um, program and uh, eventually the Irish government uh, closed it down or ended the program. Yeah, and it also came under uh, 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 criticism from uh, human rights organizations and, for example, the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong Foundation criticized it uh, for, for giving, uh, they, 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 I think they called it the financial Euro Disney for Chinese millionaires was, was how they called it. Yeah, uh, I, I, the information on this uh, investor program isn't, uh, it's, it's limited and we just know that it was very uh, um, popular among Chinese um, uh, nationals and that there was a lot of these uh, smaller companies springing up to uh, advocate or to, to, to uh, promote this um, opportunity. Um, and uh, what was happening behind the scenes, who knows? Um, but it, it was extremely popular and it, it, it brought in a lot of money to the Irish government and uh, um, there was investments in, in sports facilities and social housing projects and, and, and whatnot. But, um, but ultimately, it was one of these three items uh, you, you, you're, you're mentioning that caused Ireland to change its view of maybe how it should be interacting with China. I think so. And I think that this, you know, this, it, it, it comes from a uh, post uh you know, global financial crash where Ireland was trying to uh, present itself open for business and trying to generate business. Um, and um, I think that this mindset uh, or this approach uh, in some ways did catch up with them because there was starting to, uh, unintended consequences or, uh, were starting to arise as a result of that, and especially with Ireland's relationship to China. Um, and. You know, I think, you know, if you had something like the foreign direct investment screening or, or if you had um, certain tools and um, the issue of like the aviation leasing firms, you know, uh, operating in, in, in Ireland, perhaps there would be uh, greater due diligence on, on these companies setting up and, and what they're doing and, and, and what their business model is and, and their funding model. And perhaps something like that might have been avoided uh, uh, if, if, if these kind of tools were in place uh, 
Right. But uh, but Ireland has been, as you say, uh, presenting itself as a very business-friendly country. Uh, and in terms of uh, China, it, it has been, in your report, you mentioned it's been presenting itself as the gateway to Europe. What kind of things mm-hmm. has it been doing to, to give that image to China? Um, well, it's, it's in terms of uh, Ireland's economic model of being a... Uh, 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 country that, that that looks for foreign direct investment, um, and so it 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 mainly alludes to um, uh, Chinese companies who want to set up their European headquarters in uh, Ireland, the same way that American multinationals have done and continue to do so. Um, and so you have had Chinese companies over the years set up. From Huawei to uh, Wuxi Biologics up in um, the Dundalk, I think. Um, and then uh, you have um, Pinduoduo, which is like the competitor to, to um, uh, Alibaba or AliExpress um, uh, by uh, e commerce. Um, they've, they've moved some operations to, to Dublin and uh, TikTok as well. And so this is within the remit of the um, IDA for attracting foreign direct investment, and they've been quite successful in doing so. Um, but what that means uh, or, or what the uh, implications of, of, of doing so uh, mean can, can, are not uh, entirely clear. And usually it's more about attracting investment, uh, creating Irish jobs, which is to support you know, uh, a government in power that does that is, is, is of course, going to be uh, uh, extremely popular. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been trying to do that while doing that with two, towards other countries as well. Yeah, but Ireland has been fairly successful, it would appear, in terms of uh, attracting these Chinese businesses uh, to come and, and set up in Ireland. Uh, and you share some of the uh, statistics in your report in terms of the level of trade between uh, Ireland and uh, China. And in fact, I think you say Ireland is the only European state to have a positive trade surplus with China. Yes. Yes, and that's that's usually a surprising fact uh, for for people to hear. Now, the figures between um, the Central Statistics Office and Eurostat, the European numbers, uh, differ on this. Um, so, um, one says uh, we do have a surplus. One says we have a slight deficit. Um, but if you compare that to the rest of uh, other European countries. Um, you know, Ireland has, in the last 10 years, typically uh, maintained a surplus, while most of the European countries don't. I think maybe in previous years, it's Finland, maybe, that are that are the other ones that can maintain surplus. Um, they they um, export a lot of wood and pulp and, and a lot of these kind of uh, primary resources that China needs for its uh, manufacturing. And, um, and, but, and, yeah, and sorry, Alex. And what would the? I mean, the. I believe the the surplus was around seven hundred million in twenty twenty two. What would be? What kind of products and goods uh, uh, comprise of of the trade of Ireland's trade with China? What what makes up that? So it's 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 often understood based on the media uh, uh, that Ireland is a big exporter of agricultural projects, um, and and. Many people have, have, have just assumed, or you would see it on, on the news or whatever else. But actually, uh, it's um, electronic integrated circuits, um, and you know, for Ireland, it's it's you know we're the fourteenth largest economy 
in Europe, but uh, uh, with the inner trade relations with China, we're the fifth largest exporter, um, and that's of, of, of 13 billion euro, and the majority of these exports are these electronic integrated circuits. Um, and while agricultural products only account for 4.4%, so quite a small amount in comparison to um, the 63% uh, uh, of these uh, electronic integrated circuits or semiconductor chips. Um, yeah, and so this 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 is this is uh, kind of something that I dug up uh, in in my 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 research and in the data, and I was kind of shocked, and I wasn't sure if I had seen things correctly. But this does seem to be the case. This is something that is linked to Ireland having a semiconductor industry set up from the 70s, um, um, and the largest player there being Intel. And what it does look like is that you have smaller um, semiconductor companies in Ireland, but Intel being the massive one uh, in, in Leakslip. And how semiconductor uh, companies or factories work is that they have a front-end uh, fabrication plant and a back-end plant. And a front-end plant is where um, you will have these uh, wafers that are uh, that are um, that are produced in a very complex manner in a way that's uh, where the, the intellectual property of, of doing so is, is is highly valuable. But they are sent to China to these back-end fabric uh, uh, fabrications to be cut. And that's where the term microchip comes from. So these wafers that are the size of a frisbee or a disc are chipped or, or cut and packaged. Um, and this is what the main aspect of uh, this uh, trade of, uh, of export of goods from Ireland appears to be a within company and intra-company transfer of front-end to back-end of uh, semiconductor chips uh, within Intel. And this whole semiconductor industry has become a very sensitive area, particularly in terms of US uh, China relations recently. So this is, is this a precarious situation for Ireland to be involved in, in terms of relying on this trade? In other words, what are the risks associated with becoming too dependent on China for trade in this area? Yes and no. Um, I'll say no first, uh, and I'll explain that, because Intel, obviously being an American company that is producing semiconductors in Ireland, um, at their fab in Leakslip is set up there, you know, with Ireland's corporate tax being 12.5% and uh, with the ability to, to make um, large profits, much of that capital does not stay in Ireland. However, it, the company produces uh, uh, or it, a lot of jobs. There's a, a lot of Irish jobs there. There's a lot of uh, linkages through universities and also through secondary industries that are linked on to the um, to to Intel in Leakslip. And also there is uh, income tax and corporate tax coming from that. And you know if you have something like the U.S. Chips Act um, that will limit U.S. IP, uh, limit U.S. chips, uh, certain chips going to China. Or if China um, prevents certain chips from being uh, uh, imported to um, 
China, uh, uh, like these Micron, uh, like happened to Micron recently, um, uh, a, a type of chip actually that China is now uh, getting close to or, or is able to produce itself. And so, you know, if this whopping export uh, um, value, you know, it's, 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 I think it's close to seven or eight billion euro of, of our exports to China, which is, 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 is more than half of it, is suddenly stopped because of a US political or a Chinese political decision, that could have uh, enormous consequences for the uh, plant in Leipzig uh, and on jobs and on um, the business it's, it's, it's running. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to the Perspectives with Nilo podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to like or follow us on your favorite podcast app. In this extended episode, I'm chatting with Alexander Davy from Merricks about his chapter on Ireland-China relations in the latest European Think Tank Network on China Report. Coming up, we talk about the absence of indicators of China competency in the Irish government, how Ireland's China policy measures up against the checklist of EU policy tools, and whether Ireland-China relations might change if Sinn Féin were to enter government after the next election. Another interesting point uh, you bring up in the report uh, from Ireland's perspective is that, you know, the majority of Ireland's trade would be with the US. And of course, uh, from a democratic values perspective, Ireland would be very much aligned with the US. And it's interesting that you note in your report that since Brexit, the Irish government has looked to diversify trade-wise and sought out alternative markets to the UK. And this has brought Irish and Chinese trade closer. Uh, so Ireland is effectively courting both of these countries, the US and China, who are opponents of each other. And can you talk a little bit more about this and what you perceive as the risks for Ireland in this approach? So this comes from the the, the, the perspective or the approach of trying to uh, maximize opportunities. Um, and which has now, as I see it, as maximizing opportunities and, and, and now minimizing risks. Um, and what it means is that, well, Michal Martin will reject this idea of uh, block building happening in the world and and Europe being caught in the middle. Um, he, he, he rejects this framing, but as I see it, that when you have uh, American companies and Chinese companies operating in Ireland, and especially within the tech sector, and they are competitors with each other, but they're also national champions of these two countries, where they create a lot of revenue, uh, they improve the country's soft power, they employ a lot of people. And so Ireland, in that case, from my point of view, has the potential of becoming, or maybe it already is, a site for strategic competition between the Chinese and the US where the US-China rivalry starts to play out on uh, Irish soil. Um, and you do see this um, uh, already when we had Mike Pence a few years ago down in Shannon Airport, and he taught, and he, or down at Shannon, and he made a speech uh, regarding Ireland needing to be wary of Huawei. You had more recently on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference, um, uh, Wang Yi, one of the China's highest officials, um, say to to Michal Martin that he hopes Chinese companies will be treated fairly in Ireland. Um, 
Um, and you have a lot of these issues of, of, of regulatory issues uh, and issues where, where you have strong, powerful companies that are operating within Ireland and, and they're competing against each other. And Ireland as a country that tries to attract foreign direct investment says the more the merrier. But there are implications to that and there are risks associated with doing that. And you don't want Ireland to become a ragdoll between the US and China, uh, between their 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 uh, competition. And it is the Irish government needs to be very aware of that and, and needs to understand and assess what risks it entails by attracting both US and Chinese investment into Ireland. So in the report, you say that there isn't much difference between the positions of the parties in government, for example, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens, as regards the PRC, and that they are each seeking to maximise economic opportunities when in government, while using the EU to both provide cover and greater impact as a united body to criticise China on certain issues. And you also mentioned that, you know, Irish diplomats have stated that they do not publicly confront China over human rights issues, but they bring up their concerns privately and in a bilateral manner. However, this decision uh, not to confront the CCP publicly on issues does seem to lead to some glaring contradictions. And I have a few examples I'd like to kind of share with you uh, to, to get your feedback. And the first one being, you know, in 2020, Minister Coveney uh, issued a press release criticising the adoption of the national security law in Hong Kong. He issued a short statement supporting the EU position. But if we contrast that to June of this year, where senior CCP official Lu Jianchao, who stands accused of heading up the illegal repatriation of pro-democracy activists who oppose the regime under programmes like Skynet and Fox Hunt, he was granted access to meet senior Irish politicians. He met with Minister Eamon Ryan, Joe Hackett, who is the Secretary General of the Department of Foreign Affairs, Jerry Buthermer, who is the Shannad Cahirlock, and also members of the Institute of International and European Affairs, the IIEA think tank. And all this according to an article in the Sunday Times. And this is, on to, you know, just around the time when Hong Kong are putting bounties on the heads of eight democracy activists. So again, in this example, I believe you have, you know, Minister Coveney's short statement contrasting with meeting with the uh, CCP, senior CCP official Liu Jianchao, who is accused of transnational repression by human rights organizations such as Safeguard Defenders. Then if we take another example, you know, back in March of this year, uh, again, Minister Coveney, he was then Minister of Enterprise, he agreed to uh, make representations on behalf of TikTok to the European Commission after the company asked him to contact the agency over its decision to ban the app from official devices. And the European Union Commission banned the TikTok app, which they say, to protect the Commission against cybersecurity threats and actions which may be exploited for cyber attacks against the corporate environment of the Commission. And this again was uh, covered by the Sunday Business Post back on the 9th of April. If we contrast that with Minister Coven, you know, his quick response, Minister Coveney's quick response uh, in support of TikTok with the slow response of the Irish government in addressing the requirements of the EU 5G security toolbox and Huawei's equipment in Irish networks, which the EU has said, and these are their words, you know, they have strong concerns about the risks posed by certain suppliers of mobile communications equipment to the security of the union. 
Again, you know, a very fast response by Minister Coveney in support of TikTok, but Ireland seemed to be dragging its heels in terms of removing Huawei's equipment from our, our networks, which are which the EU say this equipment is a security threat to the Union. And there were other contrasts also, like Ireland embracing its EU 50 uh, mem- you know, 50 years membership of the, of the EU, but uh, you know, it doesn't participate in the EU trade office in Taiwan. So my question to you then, Alex, is uh, isn't there a significant imbalance really when you compare how the Irish government kowtows or appeases China versus how they are adhering to EU policies and indeed protecting Ireland's democratic values? I, I think that this is... Um there's, there's two there's two issues at play here. One uh, fits in with what I was saying earlier. There's maximizing um, opportunities and minimizing risks, and the second is related to um, this class in being an open uh, country for business and and that supporting trade, but at the same time trying to support a the international rules based order and having a um, foreign policy based on, on certain ethics and principles, and there seems this seems this uh, these these two seem to be coming closer and closer into contradiction with each other, and and whereby the Irish government is trying to maximise the opportunities from China, um, while still trying to hold uh, a foreign policy approach that is. Uh, seen as ethical or supporting, you know, um, uh, Ireland as a liberal democracy and, and, you know, in alliance with other liberal democracies around the world. And so when there is a meeting from um, this uh, uh, Communist Party member you mentioned, uh, Liu Jichao, um, from the International Liaison Department, um, it is important that, you know, for the Irish government to be prepped and to understand who they're meeting, why they're meeting, what their goals are, what are they looking to get from this, um, and also what the optics are. Um, like you said, that, that there have been allegations uh, against uh, uh, this leading party member, um, um, but I suppose in this particular um, situation, you know, as a as the leader of the of the international liaison department, um, they try and play a very low profile, um, and their mission is to cultivate relations. And I suppose in the um, situation where we've co- we've recently passed this uh, communications act and uh, uh, communication regulation uh, and digital hub development agency act, where we have the we must take measures uh, about the supply of critical components by vendors considered high risk. And that would usually relate to Huawei uh, uh, operating within our telecommunication system. So that could perhaps point to uh, uh, a level of apprehension uh, on the Chinese side about what the Irish government will or will not do now that this act is in place that gives the government power to remove um, uh, critical components deemed high risk and whether or not the Irish government decides that Huawei is a high risk vendor um, and, and whether that is uh, something of critical risk to, to Ireland's national security. Um, but again, it's, it's difficult to know that um, um, based on the limited information, um, but it is very interesting that someone so senior 
uh, was brought to Ireland to to discuss relations and and to um, uh, you know check in and see where things are and how Ireland stands and uh, that does show to me there is a worry of Ireland uh, pivoting or 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 maybe uh, following uh, von der Leyen's approach of of de-risking, um, um, which seems to be uh, causing anxiety on the Chinese side. You do mention in the report about an absence of indicators of China competency in the Irish government, uh, which which would lead to maybe not being able to consider all the implications of meeting with such a senior CCP figure. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you meant uh, when you when you said that in in the report, the absence of indicators of China competency? What were the things you you saw in your investigation? Well, it, it was. Um, so, you know, working on this report, I have looked at other countries, um, and I think for the listeners and for yourself, Neil, looking at countries like Sweden and the Netherlands, who have taken quite a wide range of actions uh, to coordinate uh, interdepartmentally or interministerially, um, also uh, in a vertical way from central government to local government, um, you know, and, and the ways in which that there has been uh, an active effort uh, uh, and there's also levels of competency within those countries with regards to China and having uh, expertise within uh, in relation to China, but also um, training for civil servants, for uh, diplomats, um, and also setting up institutions that can deal with potential issues like um, uh, information contact point where universities in the Netherlands can go to this information contact point to see that if is it okay to to uh, to sort of some sort of cooperation with certain Chinese universities or are there risks involved with that and they have a lot of these institutions which are very useful and it's not really seen in Ireland um, up until uh, Michal Martin's speech at the Royal Irish Academy in um, May where he spoke about de-risking, there was not much coming out of the Irish government or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, or Department of Foreign Affairs, I should say, with regard to Ireland's approach to China and with regard to um, uh, dealing with China. Um, and so I did speak to um, uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and they did give me an answer regarding my question about competencies. Um, and just to quote them, they say that the Department of Foreign Affairs Asia-Pacific Unit has expanded in the last 10 years, reflecting increased engagement in the region, including the opening of a number of new embassies and consulates. Um, don't know, so they were supposed to open something in, in Chengdu or Chongqing, but that never happened. They go on to say, there are currently 2.4 officers working on China, one with Mandarin. The department's language strategy has seen more Mandarin speakers recruited in recent years with a view to providing a greater pool of officers to engage at different career stages in China. So that's the official answer from the Department of, uh, department of Foreign Affairs that they have 2.4 officers working on China. I, I, um, I imagine 0.4 means that someone is spending 40% of their time working on China and 60% somewhere else. Um, 
but that is quite limited. Um, what, what about, uh, you know, uh, expertise outside of government or uh, independent expertise? Like, for example, I, I wanted to ask you, is it significant that out of 22 or so EU-wide think tank organizations that contributed to this uh, ETNC report, there's none from Ireland? Most other countries have one or two, but none from Ireland. Yeah, um, you you do. So m most of these think tanks from around Europe would be maybe international and European affairs think tanks, and with the exception of maybe somewhere like Sweden, which will have a China-specific think tank. Um, but they all typically have someone focused on China. Um, as far as I'm aware, I don't know of any uh, experts in think tanks in Ireland uh, focused on uh, China specifically, maybe on the wider Asia-Pacific region, region or East Asia. Um, our experts usually will maybe come from universities. Um, um, we have a famous, or we have a very good uh, uh, historian at Trinity College Dublin, Isabella Jackson. Um, but focuses more on on, on, on China's modern history. And you also have um, Alexander Dukalskis from UCD who focuses on authoritarian regimes. Um, but regarding China itself, there's, there's, there's not so many indicators of, of specific experts. And, you know, the, the implications of that then, I mean, the other thing you present in, 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 uh, in the report is a checklist of different EU policy tools. You mentioned these earlier, you know, EU policy tools benchmarking Ireland's China policy. And more than half of these, there's seven, of, uh, uh, seven in total listed in your report, um, four out of seven are not under consideration at all by the Irish government. Mm -hmm. You know, is this, uh, is this again... Uh, lack of competency or uh, what do you put it down to? Are the Irish government in a state of denial, maybe? I, 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 I don't know, to be honest. I think that um, part of it is, you know, um, China may be seen as a range of many countries that Ireland has diplomatic relations with. And it's, it's, it's uh, you know, one of another number of countries that we need to manage relations with. Um, it seems that there is, perhaps, uh, based on what the Department of Foreign Affairs has said, that there is an increase in, in, in interest in, in dealing with that. But um, yeah, regarding the you know this foreign direct investment screening mechanism, um, it's still, I think it's at a reading stage in the in the Shannad, uh, or uh, and maybe going to be sent back to the Dáil. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any issues. I've been what I've been reading uh, what 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 the, the issues that have been discussed, and I don't know why or, or not it hasn't been moved forward and um, maybe that's an agenda issue related to the house of the Oireachtas. um regarding um things like national contact points for knowledge security which you have in other countries or um assessing dependencies you know that's, that's quite important you'll see a lot of other countries will assess their strategic dependencies on china and and you know when i was talking about um, the, the, the export of semiconductors uh, from Ireland to, to China, you know, and, and, and Michal Martin talks about de-risking. To me, the elephant in the room is like, well, surely these, these semiconductors are, 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 are and the, even the massive export is something that we need to look at. How do we de-risk or how do we prevent any potential fallout regarding US or China policy uh, on the export of, of uh, these um, 
electronic integrated circuits to, to, to China. Um, and so I think that is crucial, especially since it's such a large chunk of our exports to China. Overall, then, um, I see analysts are saying that Europe has taken some big steps forward in reassessing the risks of doing business with Beijing. Um, what does the future hold for Ireland, do you think? You outlined a number of considerations for the future in, in your report. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? Sure. Um, there has been a benefit of trade, uh, or there has been a benefit for Ireland in trade with China. Um, but it needs to be, this, this interdependency, we, we, it needs to be assessed for potential risks. Um, um, and we need to look at uh, the potential of uh, you know, sudden political upheavals, uh, you know, whether it's China's invasion or Russia's invasion of Ukraine or a potential in, uh, invasion of Taiwan um, or an inflection point in US-China tensions. Um, Ireland needs to look at its own economic security and, and, and see um, what, what, what could happen if, if, if uh, our trade with China uh, uh, and our, our relationships with, with FDI and our also investments in China would be affected by certain instances. Um, and I think they can only do that if, if Ireland, you know, uh, the Irish government has better coordination, whether that's interministerially, uh, vertically between central and local governments, or having a cross-sectoral coordination mechanism. Uh, and I think to back that up, uh, you know, bolstering China-related expertise and capacity in the civil service would, would, would very much um, uh, benefit greatly from that, um, so that we know how to approach uh, our dealings with China. So we know that you know we're speaking to someone from the international liaison department and, and what their background is, and we can also prevent you know future issues of Richard O'Halloran you know being stuck in China or or uh, overseas uh, a police overseas uh, service station uh, popping up without any uh, permission. Um, and I think you know we do need to do some work on ourselves and and, and look at the risks of our, and and our approach to China to make sure that we're not exposed and and that we're not going to be um, throttled in any way if 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 there are certain global events that take place. Okay. Um you know, we there's constant speculation here about what a future government in Ireland might look like. Um, and, uh, you know, Sinn Féin has been increasing in the polls in terms of popularity. Uh, how do you think Sinn Féin in government might affect the Ireland-China relationship? Um, I think traditionally Sinn Féin, um, with its political roots um, relating to a kind of internationalist left-wing view of the world um, would have very much aligned with China in many ways and have spoken out in favour of China. Um, I haven't really followed recently um, what Sinn Féin's approach towards China is. I just remember a couple of years ago that um, an Irish Sinn Féin, an Irish uh, Sinn Féin TD did go to the embassy to listen to from from the the China's ambassador to Ireland's um, point of view on on the protests in Hong Kong, and he listened to that, um, which I don't know what that means exactly, but you know the Irish government uh, approach was that you know there was a crackdown on uh, demonstrations, looking advocating for democracy, advocating for uh, one country, two systems rule to be respected, um, and for you know, the, the, this 50-year 
transitionary period to to maintain um, the rule of law and the way things were operating. You know, that's supposed to be from 1997 to 2047. So, um, why Sinn Féin TD went to listen to that, I'm not quite sure, but um, I think a Sinn Féin government may be more open um, to to um, uh, relations with China, but at the same time, um, you know, that's why the EU as a supranational institution is, you know, very aware of, of uh, changes in government, dramatic shifts in government. Uh, well, I mean, the, like an election will having a dramatic uh, change. And you see that in somewhere like Hungary or you'll see that in somewhere like um, Greece. And, and uh, there will there is pressure put on by Brussels when there are certain uh, moves made by 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 European countries to try and attract uh, you know a large Chinese investment or or something that could be uh, high risk and um, which the government's power could be using to to you know boost support and boost uh, its chances for re-election. Um, so there is good oversight on that, and I wouldn't be that, that wouldn't be something I would be uh, extremely worried about. Um, I think. Um, it, it, there is a overtone window within which the Irish government, no matter what is, can operate. And if it pushes too far, you know, again, we live in a democratic society that I think there would be a lot of pushback from the Irish people if any political party in power was to do something extremely dramatic or, or against the status quo in, in any major way. Alexander Davy is an analyst editor with Merricks, and my sincere thanks to him for sharing his views and insight with us on Perspectives with Nilo. You can find out more about the topics discussed in the interview on our blog site at pwnilo.com, where we've linked Alex's paper on Ireland-China relations, as well as the entire European Think Tank Network report. You can follow Perspectives with Nilo on Spotify, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app, as well as on Instagram and Twitter. And that's where we leave it for now. Until the next time, thank you for listening. Slánox Banacht. <laughs>